Well, it's great to be with you again. I've been coming here for I don't know how many years, 10 years. But it's great to be with you again and special for my family. My wife and I met at uh, Westmont College, not a far shot from here. And uh, it's just it's a great place. Santa Barbara's beautiful anyway, but it's always nice to come back here and uh, spend time with you. Uh, our ministry, Arts and Entertainment Ministries, my wife and I, <clears throat> our background, I was playing orchestra pits at age 14. I played clarinet, saxophone, flute, studied, studied oboe as well. My wife was a professional actress at age 15, theater and film. And, and uh, we were performing and gigging and doing all these things and started leading us to Christ and saw that the church really didn't know exactly what to do with the arts. How do you reach out to the artist? How do you connect our theology that we hold dearly with creativity in the arts? And how many sermons have you ever heard on art? So that began a journey uh, going to seminary and teaching in New York City and on the island, Long Island, and then coming out here and launching uh, arts and entertainment ministries. So if you're an artist, uh, please check us out. But our passion is to equip you to think, live, and create from a biblical worldview in the mainstream. So artists in LA, people gigging in, in the mainstream and uh, challenging you. We have an institute coming up in October and uh, you can go to our website. I can give you that link later. But I encourage you that you're not alone. There are resources for you. So the passage we just read is about love and yet the title I gave you was Pursuing a Life of Beauty. <clears throat> One of the challenges as Christians is we need to exegete the text, look at the Greek, look at the language and what is this about? And then we need to look at the culture and say, how does the culture we talk to and the culture we live in day by day have any relationship with the text we just read? And in, often in Christian circles, we talk about truth, we talk about what is right, what is good. And our culture basically says, that's all ridiculous. Truth is just a power play. You're trying to will to power over me. If you want to talk about what is good, you're trumping your culture over mine. They're relative where are you coming from? Why does this mean anything to me? Anyone heard these responses? This is where our culture is. But when it comes to beauty, it's a different discussion. We're all drawn by beauty. Women, I don't know if you know this week, Michael Kors just bought Jimmy Choo shoes for $1.2 billion. Billion. It's a huge industry. We spend lots of money trying to look beautiful, trying to find meaning in that and satisfaction in those things. And so beauty may be a better way to talk to our neighbors, to our friends, even to talk to ourselves about what drives us and what really should lead us to Christ. James K.A. Smith has written a book recently, You Are What You Love. And one of the main points in his book is that for too long in Christian circles, we've talked about discipleship as if we are thinking heads. That this is a container to deposit information in and that will change everything. So if we give you the right doctrine, the right worldview, the right syllogisms, you'll be a better Christian, right? And so especially in the Reformed tradition, we've been good at this. Kind of coming out of modernism, the Enlightenment, and the Puritans have focused very heavily on this. What do you do? What do you think? How do we know how we're saved? All these kinds of questions. And those are valid. Don't get me wrong. Those are very important. But that is all you focus on you won't change. Even Aristotle realized just to give you labels and terms doesn't make you a good person. It just helps you understand what the problem is. So we're not primarily thinkers. As James K. Smith says, we're primarily desirers, lovers, and wanters. 
And he makes some great points, but I will submit to you the morning, one of the things he misses is really that what you desire is beauty. You desire to be loved, which is a form of beauty, but you desire beauty. But before we go too far, I want to clarify some things. In this text, the word love over and over in this text is really agape. And if you grew up in the church, maybe you didn't grow up in the church, you've heard this. But for too long in the church, we have not clearly understood the terms for love. We know it's an elastic term, and, and I can say I love pizza, I love my wife, I love, you know, whatever it is, sunsets, I love living in Santa Barbara, all these things. And yet we mean very different things, but we expect it to carry that weight. So I can say I love pizza, I turn around and say I love you to my wife, and she knows I love her in a different way than I love pizza, I hope, right? But we have too many terms that we're jumbling all inside this term, and so if we look at the Greek, and the Bible, we have it in Greek. So we look at these three terms. You've all heard phileo, agape, and eros, right? Phileo, of course, brotherly love. Uh, if you look at the history of our country, William Penn, his colony was Pennsylvania, and he wanted to design a city that did not have the horrors, as he called it, of European cities. He didn't want the crowded streets. He didn't want all the manufacturing right on top of where we lived. So he, he created wider streets than anything in those cities. You want everybody to have a plot of land with your own garden and create a, a kind of a half city, half country place where we could get to know our neighbors and take care of our gardens and have a brotherly love for each other. So we could design a city that would foster that. And of course, Philadelphia means city of brotherly love. And we long for this. We want brotherly love. The Bible even talks about this. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And it goes on as like the anointing of God upon you. That when you have that sweet fellowship, it is a gift from God. And that's what church is supposed to be. We want brotherly love. We want community. And it is sweet fellowship. We get together. We know we're on the same page. The Holy Spirit gives us this communion. We can share each other with our burdens. We can share what's going on and encourage one another. And that's great. The second kind I want to look at as is agape. This is the love we see in this passage is the character of God. It is passionate. It is without uh, ulterior motives. It is unconditional and selfless. And he gives us the example in this passage. John says, verse 9 and 10, this is how God showed his love, agape, in this text. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him this is love, agape, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. And we've all heard about this is what we long for. And even as a child growing up, your mother's love for you, your father's love, first few years of your life, you bring nothing to the table. You're crying. They got to change diapers and feed you and everything else. There's no return. It's just loving this child. If you know people who adopt someone, to adopt a child is one of the greatest expressions of this kind of love. They don't deserve it. They're not part of your family. But you welcome them in even though they don't deserve it. So this is agape. And agape is mostly defined by the Apostle Paul. It didn't have these nuances before then, but that's where it comes from. Now the last one I want to clarify is eros. In the church, we've talked for too long. The eros is this sensual, sexual love. And I want to tell you, that's not true. In philosophy, this is not what eros means. This is not the history of it. The Bible didn't define it. The New Testament really doesn't use it. 
it's really Plato who defined the term eros. And the interesting thing for eros is that Plato said there are really two kinds. There is one that is a desire just for an object, which even Plato says is vulgar. Even Plato says, this is not what you want. There is a heavenly kind of eros where you look at objects and you say, what is behind this? Where is this beauty coming from? Why does my heart move at the sunset? Why am I elated? And, and ask yourself, how do I get to what is behind this? Who designed this? Where is this beauty coming from? Right? And even if you're familiar with uh, Plato or that philosophy class you had that you barely got through maybe, but that, cl that classic myth of the cave. If you're looking at the shadows, the fool stays there and says, I'm content with this. It's the philosopher, the wise man, that says, I have a desire to understand that, but I'm not stopping there. I'm going to look beyond it, turn around, and see where the source of this light and these shadows are. This is what Eros is about as Paul comes into this culture and is talking about what agape is. Just a second. For too long we've thought Eros is, we've talked about it mostly as desire being sexual. And so we're missing, where is the place in our theology for real passion and desires? The Westminster Divines didn't even want to say God has passions because that means he would change. And so we avoided these terms. Let's control these things and let's love. But passions, these desires drive us. A friend of ours in New York, I was pastor of church on Long Island and asking people kind of their, their stories. How did they come to Christ? And one of them uh, Michael, he is a finance guy, a numbers guy in a finance company. And he said, I came to Christ because I went to Carnegie Hall. I went to Carnegie Hall to listen to Bach. I had no goal of thinking about God, of hearing about God, of having anything to do with God. You know, as I sat there and listened to the music, I was moved. So powerfully moved. And in my heart and my mind, I asked, why does this movie, there is order, there is beauty in this world, I must seek out where it comes from. He knew at that moment there was a God, and that began his search. Later came to Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, Tim Keller's church, and eventually became a Christian. But the beauty and the desire led to understanding who God is. There was a band who was big and popular a few years ago called Live, more of a heavy, heavy sound. Um, but in the song Heaven, he talks about people arguing, well, what are the proofs for heaven? What are the proofs for existence of God? And his answer is this, I don't need no one to tell me about heaven. I look at my daughter, who's less than one years old, I look at my daughter and I believe. I don't need no proof when it comes to God and truth. I can see the sunset and I perceive. That's it. It's my experience of beauty. It's not appealing to truth. It's not appealing to goodness. It's not appealing to an argument but this is conclusive for him. He doesn't need anything else. This is what moves us. If you're one of those people that's curious about this term eros, there's a book by Anders Nygren, the translation, written in the 1930s, translation by Westminster Press in the 50s, really clarifies this. But we need to redeem this idea of eros. And if we're going to make sense of James Smith's contribution, that we're not thinkers, we're desirers, we're passionate. I, mean, I don't know how many of you here are married, but you didn't tell your wife, well, I think a lot about you and I have these ideas and syllogisms about who I want you to be. No, you love them, you desire them, you want them, and you're designed this way. 
If you're single, that's the kind of relationship you want. You want someone to desire you. You want to desire them. You don't want someone to say, well, this is a good marriage because you have X amount of money in your bank account and this is a smart career decision. No. Love me. I want to love you. And in this passage, God is saying, do you love me? Not just think about me. Not just think it's good. Are you passionate about me? Because I am passionate about you more than you've dared to think. I'm willing to die for you. That's how passionate I am. And you're opening your eyes and seeing this. Are you seeing all of your desires, if you trace them, are pointing you to me? And so, in this book by Niger, and he makes the case that all the objects of pleasure, really, if we understand them, for a wise person, is going to point back to God. I remember years ago, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and we used to go rafting and uh, canoeing up in the Rocky Mountains. And one time, I was the youth group, and we came around this corner, and there's just gorgeous cliff, and the sun's just hitting the cliff, and we all just were silent. And one person just decided to start singing. And they sang, How Great Thou Art. O Lord my God, when I awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars... I hear the rolling thunder, the power throughout the universe displayed. And then what? Then sings my soul. That's the natural response. Then sings my soul. My Savior God to thee, how great thou art. See, our world is looking for beauty to move us. We're spending money on things everywhere, clothing and cars and technology and advice relationships and the self-help section of Barnes & Noble is ridiculous. We want this so bad, and yet it's here. God has done the work. This is where we find it. Then sings our soul, my Savior, God to thee. So, we long to embrace the kind of virus which will drive you to the source of beauty. This is what drives you to the person you marry, to follow the calling of your life, and to pursue the one who made all of creation. Now, at the end of this book, 1 John, we see a caveat at the very end. He's not just saying all passions are good. That would be kind of foolish. We're all human. We know we've followed passions that have led us awry. But at the very end, he says, we know also the Son of God has come and given us understanding so we may know him who is true. And we are in him who's true by being in the Son, his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, here he gets very sweet and tender, and John is known for this. Keep yourselves from idols. Curious. We're talking about love all the time, and then he says, keep yourself from idols. Why? Why does he do this? Because you're not thinkers, you're worshipers. You're passionate, you have desires, and you're longing for something. Well, what are the idols of our culture? What are people worshiping in this culture that's not working for them? Politics, governments. Anybody know anyone in the last year who thought politics was going to solve something? This was everything, and it failed them. Has anybody seen any of this? What happens when your idol fails? Are you happy? No, you're mad. You're angry. Your God failed you. And if your idol is politics, you think that's going to solve the world, we should be involved, don't get me wrong, we should be very involved. We should be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents, as Christ said. 
But if you think that's the answer for everything, that's an idol. It will fail you, and you will get angry and crushed because you made it your God. People say, well, if I just have enough money, then I can afford to live in Santa Barbara and stay here, and I'll be happy, right? Anyone? You're so quiet. It's like, are you with me? Okay. Everybody, yes. And you think, well, if I get there, then I'll have success. And if you don't get there and you keep working and working, you become cynical because that idol is never paying out. It's never satisfying you, right? And if it does pay out, you finally got the house. Well, then, did that fix your heart? Did that give, was that the panacea you thought it was? No, your God failed you again. Plenty of miserable, wealthy people. A couple of rock and roll stars recently with all the money Six children and a wife committed suicide. Why? Because all of that was not going to carry the weight of God. It's an idol. It can't satisfy you. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Other people think, if I just have the right friends, the right family, this will solve my problems as well. But if we're reformed, and we know what depravity is, that we're all sinful, then the reality is in every relationship where two or more are gathered together, someone has sinned against another one. Right? We, we hurt each other. We screw up. We say things we shouldn't have. We do things we shouldn't have. We take offense we shouldn't have. And then we have to forgive and we have to confront and say, how do we build this relationship again? But if we think that is the end all be all, that will crush us. And one day, you will hate your spouse because they're not matching that ideal for you. Your idol has failed. You'll be mad at someone or give in to something because you think that's everything. And so we have to be, I'll take that as an amen. <laughs> Thank you. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Realize at the end of the day where you need to desire things, you're designed to do this. But where do they go? At the end of the day, are you clinging to something that is going to satisfy you forever or is going to fail you in a day, a week, a year, 10 years? What are you clinging on to? The only place our desires can lead us where they will not be disappointed is God himself. The only one. We must know and rely on the love God has for us. There's only one love that can heal your hearts and give you the ability to love others. Whether it's, no matter where you are, we all want fellowship. We all want community. These are good things. Don't get me wrong. We want the love of a spouse, the respect of your parent. You want the respect of your children. If you're a child, you want the love and understanding of your parents. These are all things you want, but they're not more important than understanding God's love for you and what he's doing in that context. But the question is, what will you do? Will you look to beautiful things and say, yes, I can understand this, I can enjoy this, but that's nothing to do with my faith? Or will you realize everything that you desire is somehow connected to your faith and your relationship with God? Either it's taking you away because it's an idol, or it's pointing you to Christ. And the question is, how, how can you use that, either discard it if it's, if it's tempting, or take that to lead you back to Christ? How can you do that? Now, in this passage, the word eros is not used at all. I'll come back to that. It's agape over and over in different forms in the Greek. But what I want to submit to you is eros is what 
is everywhere else calling you. God is offering his creatures for this desire. Will you follow everything I've placed around you to find me? To look for me and realize what you really crave is my agape. Even the great philosopher said the most beautiful thing is sacrificial love. That's why the most powerful movies have sacrificial love. Even men were tough and raw, but what's the movie we love? Anyone? Braveheart, right? Sacrifice. It's powerful. It's moving. That's what the arrow is supposed to drive us to, to long for his agape. So my suggestion to us as Christians is truth and in, in claiming truth is often very difficult in this culture. To argue over truth, sometimes it just make people more angry. If someone will listen, they have ears to hear, great. But if not, what are you going to do? And what about goodness and morality in a culture that wants to destroy every underpinning of morality in our culture? That's often not the place to start. I want to submit the place to start, and the church has to rethink this, is love and desires, your desire for beauty, your desire to be loved. We need to start here because everyone resonates. We all long to be loved. We all long to experience the beauty, to be surrounded by beauty, and to be loved. We're not here mere humans with minds on a stick. We have hearts that long to be loved. The question is, will you live with passion and protect your hearts? Will you look to God to satisfy all your desires and make you beautiful and yet keep yourself from idols? Can we pursue him? Can we see the beauty and run to Christ and say, I want to be like him. I want to love others so much. I want to be like him so much that people say, there's something about your family that's beautiful. Something different than everyone else in this block or anyone else in this workplace. You love people differently. You have a heart for things. Something different. I want to be like you. And then their arrow strive will say, how can I be like you? And you're going to say, it's Christ. It's the agape love that you're seeing in me. And that's what this passage is. Is that we should be that attraction that people look to God through us and want to be like Christ as they ask us, who has called us to be different? Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for not making the earth all dirt. You made it beautiful. You made it glorious. You made it wonderful. Thank you that you didn't leave us alone, but you promised to come and save us to love us, to rescue us.